This morning we're going to look at a lot of kind of the overarching idea of 2, 4 through 10 is building on what your identity is in Christ. Now if you ever hear me talk about uh, my upbringing, I lived overseas for 11 years, I got to go to a lot of different schools, and when you would transfer to a new school, I went to three schools my second grade year. And to, at some point, my parents quit saying, every new school is a new opportunity. Because I was, I was worn out on opportunity. But you kind of get to be something different in each one of these schools. And, so, and, and you kind of fit in with, with what this mesh of students is like in a different way in each one of these schools. And so you go to one school and you're going to be kind of the, the king of the class. You're the most athletic. You're the most outgoing. You're the most popular. You go to the... Uh, next school and you find out that you are really only a big fish in a small pond and now you are neither the smartest, the most athletic, or the most outgoing. In fact, nobody really cares for you or wants anything to do with you. But really, no matter which situation you find yourself in in life, whether you're changing jobs, moving towns, moving into a different neighborhood, or trying to find a place in a church, what we find is that if you are a Christian, if you have submitted your life to Jesus Christ, you have an identity in him that's unassailable. You have an identity in him that's not shifted and changed by all the different situations you might find yourself in. You marry into a family and they're all very outgoing and you're an introvert and people hug you. It just makes you die inside. Or maybe you're a, a really outgoing and loving person. You love to hug on folks and you marry into a family where they're like, oh, please, don't, this, is my, this is my bubble. Don't touch it. And you're dying inside. All these things can happen. And all these things are likely happening in your life today. But as a Christian, you have an identity in Jesus Christ that doesn't change. But many of us, we have this hyper-individualized perspective on our identity in Christ, and this is what we like. I like this about Christianity, I like that about Christianity, and we bring it in, and it becomes this blob, this amorphous blob that we have made in fashion Christianity being made in our own image, in our own likeness, rather rather than what Scripture records. And so we're going to be challenged in that regard today. Let me read 9 and 10, and then we'll walk through a bit at a time. Peter writing, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people... But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Throughout this explanation that Peter has, has led us through, 4 through 10, he kind of talks about what it is to be a believer and what it is to be one who rejects, who does not believe in Jesus. And so now here he, he caps it returning to again what it is for a person to be a believer. Now you're going to notice in verse 9, if, you're, if you've read much of the Bible, that these sound a lot like some of the titles given to Israel in the Old Testament. And if you just want to jot this down, you can go look these up later. You can find these in Exodus 19, 5 through 6, and in the book of Isaiah 43, chapter 43, verses 20 through 21. You can look these up later in your life group or on your own. But just know that this is what Peter's expanding upon. This is what he's doing, and this is where he's trying to build this base, their understanding of who they are in God. Peter writes to an incredibly diverse group of folks that are not all living in the same city, that are not all going through the same things, but he has found their identity in Christ, and he's trying to help them find commonality in this joint identity. So what's the first thing he writes to them? First thing he writes to them and says, he says, but you, 
in essence saying, you are different than those who reject Jesus, but you, you are a chosen race. You're a chosen race. Now, Peter began this book with the idea that they are chosen. They have been set aside by God to a purpose. And what we've investigated, what we've looked at over the last couple of weeks, is that their placement in, in God, kind of in this broad expanse of life, is, is so incredibly tied to Christ's own placement. And in fact, in chapter 2, in verses 4 and verse 6, we see the same idea used again of being chosen. Look back at it. As you come to him, speaking of Jesus, this is verse 4 in chapter 2, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, what does it say? He is chosen and precious. Jesus Christ himself is, is elect. He is chosen by God. And then verse 6, we see the same idea brought back again. It says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a cornerstone chosen and precious. The, the choosing that God did on the part of the Christian is ultimately always found in the person of Jesus Christ. And so when he's going through this, we have to understand that God has intervened in our lives. Christianity has not been some type of self-help process where we reach step 10 and we got to it and we said, step 10, I'm a Christian. I finally reached the next level. It's not a promotion like you receive at work. You, 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 you bleed for the company. You sweat for the cr- company. You cry for the company. And then after 50 years, they say, finally, you've arrived. You're at this next level. See, the temptation, because everything we see in life is, is about reaching this next level in understanding. I want to have a next level relationship. I want to have, I want to have a next level uh, account balance in my bank account. You know, when I have this next level idea kind of met in, but in Christianity we recognize you are already there. Why? Because of your association with one who has overcome death in the grave. Because of your, uh, of your association with one who is sinless and perfect, yet he took on the punishment of sin and death and your imperfection so that you might be united with God forevermore. So he comes to this disparate group of people living in a variety of different places, and this is what he tells them. You are one in Jesus. At God's intervention, we are one. We see churches all over, in the ESV, the way they've rendered this word here, race, we see churches largely split along racial lines, right? And so there's a church where African Americans typically go, there's a church where typically Asians go, there's a church where typically Hispanics go, and there's a church where everybody else is kind of a mix of people that largely manifest themselves as, as, as white, as those who burn in the sun, right? It, it's a serious, unfortunate thing. This is largely how we split. This is kind of it. This is how we split up. And so it, it kind of creeps into this understanding that the way we do church is the right way. The way we sing, the songs we sing, the heritage we bring in, our uh, liturgy, so the order of our service is kind of the right way, the only way, and this is the way it should be done. This is decidedly narrow-minded and wrong. Most amazing church that Valerie and I ever had the, the fortunate opportunity to attend was this International Baptist Church in Prague. It was one of the only two or three English-speaking churches in the city. And one Sunday, the pastor said, uh, how many different nationalities do we have in here today? And there were almost people from different, 40 different countries manifested that day. And one of the most beautiful things in that service we go through, and during every service we'd say the Lord's Prayer, but everybody would say it kind of in their, their heart language. 
And so you'd hear it in, in English, you'd hear it in French, you'd hear it in Spanish, you'd hear it in Czech, you'd hear it in Slovak, you'd hear it in Russian, you'd hear it in German, you'd hear it in Finnish, which sounds like, <laughs> sounds like dragons fighting, it's awful, it's terrifying. So you'd hear it in some different African dialects, and it was this beautiful picture of what heaven's going to be like. Now, I understand what they were saying. I knew where the text came from, but I couldn't, couldn't pick out all these different languages. So it was this cacophonous worship of Jesus directed in their heart language. And can, friends, can I tell you, this is ultimately always what we want in church. The election, the choosing, is bringing us to be one body. Let's not find other ways and avenues and, and and ways to be creative in, in splitting us into many different manifestations of that one body. We want to pray. We want to ask God that he would give us opportunities to combine with people that look very much different than ourselves. Their life experiences are very different. Their careers are very different. Their families are very different. The way they worship may be different. And we are killing ourselves to make this happen as a staff. And I rejoice that we're seeing some of these things come to light. This week, I had an opportunity to speak to an African-American pastor about doing a community worship gathering. And then on the other hand, I had an opportunity to meet with a cowboy church pastor to talk to me about doing a revival together. And so, like, you can't get further apart, right? I got a cowboy church pastor, and I got an African-American pastor. And he's like, man, we can all be friends for the gospel together. I said, yes, amen. I mean, we are a chosen race together, Amen. Amen. He comes up next and he says, look, you need to understand who you are. You're one body, but you're one body for one purpose. You are a royal priesthood. Now, our hyper-individualized perspective, we read this and we all say, I love to be royal. I love the idea that I'm a king, that I'm a prince, that I'm these things. You're missing the picture if this is what you say. You're missing this picture if you apply this to some type of royalty on your own behalf. What he's describing here within this Exodus mindset is that we serve one king. He's not a president, he's not a prime minister, he's not an elected official. We serve one king, and his name is Jesus. And because of that, we are priests in his kingdom, not ours. The sooner we understand that, the better off we'll all be. The sooner we understand that, the better off we will all be. We're not seeking here to build a Ridgecrest kind of kingdom in Greenville, Texas. We're seeking to build a Jesus Christ kind of kingdom in Hunt County and all those places he takes us to. And in this, we have a very specific role. We have a very specific role, each and every one of us. If you knew enough of the gospel to be saved, then you know enough of the gospel to understand that there is work to be done. Friends, God in salvation has given you certain gifts. He's given you the gift of exhortation. He's given you the gift of hospitality. Some of you, he's given the gift of keeping your mouth shut and not saying the ugly things. And so, but he's given you different gifts. and Continue to exercise them for the expansion of his kingdom. And what we see within the context of 1 Peter is he has this really specific understanding of what we're to do in our administration is serving in the role of being priests in his heavenly kingdom. Look back up in chapter 2, starting at verse 4. He says, you come to him. So we cast off all this stuff, beginning there in the first part of chapter 2. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. We've been purified by his word. And then we come to him. And he says, this is what he is. He is a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And then look what he says. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to offer holy spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So it is our union, our close association with Jesus in salvation that prepares us to be a priesthood for his purposes. 
finding your place in the broad universal church is about as much as utilizing your spiritual gifts for what God will call you to do. So ultimately, when you're choosing a church, you're trying to find a place to join and identify with your body, you're not finding a place that says, how does this meet my needs? It's never about that. And so you're not picking a church primarily and saying, I love their children's ministry, I love their men's ministry, I love their women's ministry, I love their benevolence ministry, I love their CR ministry, I love all these things that they're doing, and I love the way that it feels to me. If you understand that, a priest's role is service, not to be served. Jesus gave us his ultimate example of what it is to serve. He said the Son of Man came to serve and not to be served. The role of a priest in a church is service. For whatever reason, for whatever reason, over the decades and the years, we've led people to believe that when you come into the church and you are saved, then you are safe to sit. You're not safe to sit. You're not saved so that you might come into the church and say, oh, I want to see this done, I want to be on this committee, I want to be on this team, I want to see these things happen. You are saved to serve. This is what he's done. He's made you a chosen race. He's made you a royal priesthood. We have one King Jesus who sits high and exalted, and he calls each and every one of us, both the called clergy and the laity that really represent the church, he's called all of us to pour out ourselves in service to that one King. Amen? Amen. And why aren't more of a servant? Why aren't more of a servant? You see, when we really begin to understand our identity, we look and we say that not serving is rebellion to our identity. And that's really what we're going to see through this. It's painful. Not serving is rebelling against who you are in Jesus Christ. Look what he calls us to next. He says, you are a holy nation. Israel, as they leave Egypt and they're headed out, Moses begins to have conversations with God. God begins to tell Moses how these people are going to be distinct and different from all the people around them. And so we're reading through the Old Testament. Genesis is very engaging. Exodus is very engaging. And then we begin to get get into the law, and we find it's the cure for all insomnia. But really, as we go through this, what you see in the law are all the various ways. One, that he's showing them that they can never attain perfection. They always need a Messiah. And two, all the ways they're going to be distinct and different. Why? Because God is distinct and different. In being a holy nation, what we're doing is manifesting the character of God in our lives. Manifesting the character of God in our lives. Holy nation isn't an understanding that we need to appropriate for ourselves a 1950s sense of America where everybody was great and everybody loved God. What we recognize in this is that Christian, you are a part of a holy nation. You're a part of a holy nation. No matter if you live here, in Africa, in China, or if you live in the middle of the Middle East, if you're in Saudi Arabia. Wherever you live, you are a part of a holy nation, but you yourself are not a holy nation. Do you understand the distinction there? Our tendency as Americans, for whatever reason, is to look at these things and say, what does this mean to me as an individual? How do I appropriate this truth for me as an individual? And you do that to the divorce of everybody around you. You do that to the exclusion of all those people that you would come into contact with. Recognize in this, all the things that he's describing can never be done in isolation. We serve as priests alongside other priests. We are a chosen race alongside all those others that he's called to this same task. And in this here, 
in this here, being a holy nation, we are a people together. So the question becomes for us, church. In this description of being a holy nation, there are people set apart. So they're living holy lives. They're living holy lives. Their, their, their understanding about what sin is, is to reject sin in their lives. Not because people might see it and think less of them, but because they recognize that to have a relationship with God, to stay in relationship with him, is to love those things he loves and hate those things he hates. When we invite sin in our lives, when we, when we look at things we shouldn't look at, when we say things we shouldn't say, when we engage in behaviors that should have no part in our lives, we're not demonstrating what it is to be a holy nation. We're not demonstrating what it is for the church to be this people completely set apart and set unto God. All we're showing is that we can go along with the flow and we completely reject what it is to be salt and light in a community that so, so desperately needs it. Both Greenville, Hunt County, Dallas, everywhere you go, the gospel is the thing people need the most. And it's on the church to take it to them. It's on the church to display the gospel and being a holy nation and it is on the church to vocalize it. Look what he says next. He says, you are a people for his own possession. God owns you. Now, this is one of these things that kind of gets our hackles up. We don't really like it. I don't like the thought of somebody having me, somebody directing my path. Well, friend, you must not really enjoy Christianity very much because your life is not your own. It is Christ. He purchased you with the price of his own blood. To be a Christian is to be owned by someone else, to be owned by Jesus. We need to rejoice in that, not rebel against it. We are a people for his own possession. In salvation, God has created for himself a people that are worthy of his name. Because he wiped away the sin in our life with the blood of Jesus, he has created for himself a people, purchased them with the blood of Christ, and then set us apart to be worthy of manifesting, displaying his name everywhere we go, to all those people we encounter. You are owned by God if you're a believer in faith in Jesus Christ. He's given us all these different things, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his own possession, in order to build up who we are in Jesus Christ. If you don't understand who you are, you can never understand what you're supposed to do. If you don't have a great understanding of who your identity is in Christ, of what your identity is in Christ, then you can never really understand and execute what you're responsible for. Some months ago, Valerie and I uh, bought a dog. Don't buy a dog. It's this, if you hear nothing else today, don't buy a dog. If you don't have one, go on vacation and don't find anybody to take care of it. That's what you need to do. If you have a dog, you understand what a pain that is. So we bought this dog. Gorgeous. He's a good-looking hound. On paper, I mean, this thing should be a hunting dude. I mean, he should smell birds five counties away. I should always have to be telling him, get off point, get off point. This is just how he should be. You look at him on paper, his pedigree could probably hunt better than he does. And so you look at him on paper, and there's this understanding of who he should be. There's something critically important for every hunting dog, and if you're thinking about getting in the market, you need to understand this. If your dog is afraid of things, this is not good for you. This is just not good for you. I popped popcorn the other night. 
you would have thought World War III broke out. Dog's cowering in the corner, trying to turn inside of himself. And just, oh, doing this number. And I'm, it's like, it took me a second. What's going on? I love popcorn. It's delicious. It should breed excitement in a family. We have it at least a couple of times a week. And my dog is just coming apart at the seams, right? Oh, what's going on? Somebody's going to kill me. I mean, this is probably his internal dialogue. Instead, it sounded like, oh, he has no idea who he is. I could get out his pedigree and look at it and be like, you are the son of, you are the son of, you are the grandson of, your relatives have won all kinds of awards. He's like, please God, don't pop any more popcorn. <laughs> it's ridiculous to think that I try to explain to a dog what his identity is. But can I tell you that some of us in our complete rejection of our identity in Christ by the way that we live our lives have engaged in just as ridiculous of behavior. Shocking, but it's true. We have no regard. We, we care not for who our, what our identity is in Christ. We, we react in irrational ways that Christians shouldn't respond this way. So we take to, to social media to blast those other people made in the image and the likeness of God. We, we, we gossip, we turn on, we, we, we sit, we wait to be served and not to serve. We expect people in our community to be better, but we don't offer them the gospel so they can. We're not engaging and moving in kind with the type of people God has made us to be. But can I tell you this? He didn't make you to be a better person. He made you to be a person who recognized you could never be better, so he sent Jesus to die for you, to save you, so that you might be free from the, from the, the compunction and the feeling that you had to be better. Recognize who you are. You're forgiven, redeemed, and loved more than you could ever imagine. And when we begin to under, understand our identity of who we are in Christ, it drives us to want to fulfill what he calls us to do. So the next thing Peter gets into here, he says, look, understand who you are. And this is why he's made you this very specific, particular thing. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God has saved you so that you can tell other people about him. He says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. This idea of proclaim has this twofold understanding and meaning. One is encapsulated with what we do. We worship him. Now our lives, understandably, should be lived as worship. It's not just in singing, but it's at least singing. Do you understand the distinction there? It is at least singing. It is at least making our lives this sacrifice before God. And so what we do in this understanding is that we are living lives that are a bold testimony and communication of the change that he has wrought in us. When we reflect on the excellencies of his name, what is that? It's our testimony. He's moved us from darkness to light. He's brought us from oblivion into his kingdom. When we reflect upon that, it calls us to worship him on the basis of what he's done. And when we reflect upon that, the call of the Christian, the call of the one who is this chosen race, royal priesthood, this people set apart, holy nation, and people of his own possession, these people, Christian people, God saved you to proclaim about how good he is. When we don't, when we find ourselves caught up with this understanding of, oh, what if I trip, stumble, fumble, bumble over my words? Friends, can I tell you, I do this at least once a week, many times in front of you. 
And so when, we, when, our, when our worry and our fear is about stumbling and bumbling over our words or not knowing the answers to questions, we are being disingenuous to who we are. We are rebelling against God's design for our lives. If, if you cannot point to some time in the recent past, I'm talking days, not weeks, not months, days. If you can't point to some time in the recent days where you have declared God's goodness to someone who didn't know about it, then you're not acting in kind with what he's made you to be. Can I tell you what a heart check this is for me? I make the staff each week give an account of who they shared the gospel with the past week, and it's as much for me as it is for them. I need this steady reminder in front of me of who I am and what he has made me to be. Some of you need that same thing. You need to turn to your spouse, you need to turn to your friend, you need to turn to your men's group and say, man, would you hold me accountable for living out a life that gives testimony to who Jesus is and telling other people about him? Don't just live a different life. Tell people why it's different. We need to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us. He says, out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The reason that every Christian has an amazing transformation story is that all of us dwelled in darkness. Peter writes about it back in 114, and he says that we were captivated by the passions of our former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, moving into verse 15. Recognize that God has called you to be something specific. And he's called you from sin, he's called you from rebellion, he's called you from apathy. Some of us, he's called us just from trying to be good people. All this is darkness. God is the only source of light. Whether it be goodness or you're running a brothel on the weekends, both of those groups find you incredibly lost. You can be running a child trafficking wing. You can be pushing drugs. Or you can just be a good person. All of them are equally removed from the love of God. Do we understand that? It's only in this gracious movement of God from darkness to light, that we become forgiven, redeemed, and redeemed to a purpose. Peter really wants them to get this, and I so desperately want you to as well. So he comes in back into verse 10, and this, this reintroduction of who they are, and he's using the book of Hosea. Hosea had a rough life. Hosea was a prophet, and God called him to this horrible ordeal to, to live his life as an enacted parable. So God went to Hosea and he said, Hosea, go find a loose woman. He said, go find a woman who would, who, would, who would bed with any man. Go find this woman and make her your wife. Hosea does it. He goes out and they begin to have children. And, and look what happens in verse 6. The second child says, She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name no mercy. It's this description of God's relationship with Israel. He says, Call her name no mercy. For I will have no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. And he goes in. Again, in verse 8, and, 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 and no mercy is weaned, and she conceived, and she bore a son, and God said, and call his name not my people, for Israel is no longer my people. 
They went from this understanding of being the chosen people and of having God's mercy visited upon them, and now he's trying desperately to win them back, to draw them back, and Hosea is submitting himself to be dutiful, to obey God in all these ways. So he's got not my mercy, he's got not my people and no mercy. And he's living this out in front of the people. And what we read in verse 10, it says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we understand within the construct of our lives, there was a time where we were within the wrath of God. It's this form of ignorance, rebellion, pursuing goodness, pursuing wholesomeness, being polite, but still the wrath of God was coming upon us because we were outside the love of God. But just as God moved within the people of Israel, and you see this in chapter 2 and verse 23, look, he says, I will, sow for my, I will sow her for myself in the land. I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Israel understands their identity in Christ, their identity in God. Their relationship is able to be restored. Christian, you have to understand your identity in salvation. You've got to understand who God made you to be. In understanding who God made you to be, you can finally begin to live out the implications of what he called you to do. As long as we rebel and reject what God has called us to be, who he has called us to be, we're never going to begin to engage in the what he's called us to do. Would you pray with me that God would move in our hearts to drive us to obedience to his word? Father, I am so thankful for the message of Hosea that we were once not your people, but you have made us your people, that we were once those who had not received mercy, but now we are those who have received mercy in such an ample supply. And so God, I ask for the movement of your Holy Spirit in our minds that you would continually awaken us to what our identity is, to whose we are, and what you have called us to do. God, help us to be a people that don't serve out of guilt, but out of a sense of joy, out of a sense of being so incredibly thankful for what you called us to do. God, help us to be a people quick to seek repentance and confession before you. Father, I confess there are times in my life I don't live out the full identity of who I am in Jesus. So thankful for the forgiveness that is mine in the person of Jesus Christ who brought me into this saving relationship with you and who keeps me saved evermore. So Father, I pray for that to be true for those in this room. And Father, we pray especially for those who have yet to submit themselves to you that we would see them move from darkness to light, that they would confess their sins, their inability to be perfect and sinless before you and they would cry out to you for forgiveness. God, help us to be a people made for your own possession, who long to declare the excellencies of your name. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.